chapter 12, finishing up with chapter 12 here this morning. Make sure it's still working. There we go. We got special effects this morning. Ooh, right there, Exodus. Look at that, my little laser pointer. That's where we are. So, starting here where we kind of left off last time, the Israelites have applied the blood of the Lamb outside their dwellings, and as we've seen the last couple weeks, it's in the sign of a cross. And so, the very first Passover is pointing to the person of Jesus, who is the ultimate Passover Lamb, who is going to take away the sin of the world. If you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, I encourage you to go back and watch that. Um, the point of, of the Passover is to point to the person of Jesus. So the lamb that they took for the Passover lamb speaks of Jesus Christ. That's why John the Baptist would point to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul would say, Christ, our Passover lamb. And so we know without a shadow of a doubt that the Passover lamb has always been pointing to Jesus. And we see it there as you apply the blood, it, it, it's applied in the sign of the cross. Speaks of the crucifixion, that the ultimate lamb of God would suffer many years later. And so we see that here. So this has now taken place. And so picking up here in Exodus twelve twenty nine. It says, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So ten plagues have now come upon Egypt. Every time it was so Pharaoh would let God's people go into the wilderness and now serve him. But Pharaoh would not let God's people go until this tenth plague. And yet he was warned and he was told that if he did not let God's people go, that the angel of death would come and his firstborn would be taken. And so this is what happens here in verse 29. And it shows that God is no respecter of persons. He's going to judge everyone by the same standard. He does not care about our status. He does not care about our skin color. He doesn't care about how benevolent you are. He doesn't care if you're rich or you're poor. What matters to God is have you put your faith in the sacrifice that has been given for you in his son, Jesus. It is those who put their faith in the sacrifice provided by God the Father in his son. It is those... That will be saved from death. There is no sacrifice in which man can be saved other than the person of Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name, only in Jesus. It's one of the reasons why Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Israelites believed in the sacrifice provided by God. And it wasn't until they applied the blood, understand, you need to apply the blood, that they were saved from death. So know that. Understand that. They didn't understand everything that that sacrifice was pointing to. We get that. But they understood that only God can provide the sacrifice. And they put their faith in that. And so it pointed into the Savior who is to come. They put their faith in the Savior who is to come. We put our faith in the Savior who has come. It it points to the same person, Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 30 says, So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians. There's a great cry in Egypt, but there's not a house where there was not 
one dead. The Israelites, again, were saved by the blood of the Lamb that points to Jesus. I'm sure that most of them did not sleep that night and listening and probably heard some collective screams coming from the Egyptian neighbors. However, the Israelites had nothing to fear. Why? Because they applied the blood. All they had to do is remember the blood applied, as God said. We also, as believers in Christ, have the same confidence. As I look at the blood of the cross of Jesus, I see my salvation. I see it marked with the love of Jesus' blood. It's like God himself is saying to me, David, I did this for you. And I can see that blood is what brought me deliverance from the penalty of my sin. And it delivered me from the bondage of sin. And I see deliverance in the blood. And so now, in verse 31, it says, Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. So he calls, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night. This may seem a little bit contradictory because at the end of chapter 10, verse 28, we read this. And Pharaoh said to him, meaning Moses, get away from me. Take heed to yourself. See my face no more. For the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Yet they do see each other again. And how ironic that Pharaoh is the one that would call Moses in the middle of the night, especially after he told him that. And then when Moses would then tell Pharaoh in that same dialogue in Exodus 11, verse 8, it says, And all these, your servants, speaking to Pharaoh, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So Pharaoh, telling Moses to rise up and go. Pharaoh's servants also saying, echoing exactly what Pharaoh says as well, to rise up, go out, serve the Lord. That's the same message that we get today. Rise up, wake up, go out into the world and do what? Serve the Lord. Let them see Jesus. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This message... That Pharaoh is giving to Moses is a message to us as well and to everybody that's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, your calling is to go out and to serve the Lord. Rise up. Go out from among my people. And here's the thing. Pharaoh isn't just letting Israel go. He is now commanding them to go. Interesting here. Very interesting. Go out from among my people. It's now a command. And then he says, both you and the children of Israel. Before, Pharaoh would not even let the children go. Oh, the men can go and worship, but then they have to come back. But you can't take the women or children. You can't take any of the flock. But now both you and the children can go. And verse 32, and also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. After this 10th plague, Pharaoh is ordering Moses to do the very thing he's been asking for all along. And instead of letting, now he commands him to do it. And then he adds at the very end, and bless me also. This is absolutely pathetic. This is absolutely pathetic. The man wanted God's blessing without admitting his sin, 
without ever repenting, without turning in faith to God. I'm here to tell you something. God will never do that. God will never do that. You always have to repent. You always have to admit that you're a sinner. You always have to admit that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And then you have to put your faith in that. And then you have to choose to follow God. That's always been the case. And then it says, And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. Pharaoh's willingness to send the Israelites out of Egypt is also seen in the reaction of the Egyptians themselves. They also want the Israelites to leave quickly. Quickly. The word urged here in the Hebrew is chazak. And it means to strengthen, to make strong. It's the same verb that has always been used when it showed Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening his heart. The ironic twist here is now the Egyptians are hardened and strengthened in the opposite way in in their resolve of making sure they leave, whereas Pharaoh was resolved in making sure they stayed. But it's the same verb, and just as hard as Pharaoh's heart was in wanting to keep them, now the Egyptians' uh, hearts are so hard in making sure that they leave. That's such a God thing. It's such a God thing. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up and their clothes on their shoulders. Now they're ready to go out. This possibly could be the first example of fast food in the Bible. Um, you know, before, let's take, the leaven, let's take the unleavened bread just the way it is and let's go. Verse 35, now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses and they asked from the Egyptian articles of silver articles of gold and clothing. I'm going to show you something about this here in a moment that I hope will blow, blow you away, should blow you away. Verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. The terminology used here, plunder, in the Hebrew is not Saul, and it means to strip off the spoil to snatch away. It's a term that is used in the way of a military conquest or victory and having victory over a people group that you uh, take their spoil. Okay, And so it shows here right here that the Israelites leave as conquerors over the Egyptians. And so we see this promise that was fulfilled Uh, a promise that was given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, 14, when God was talking to Abraham and said, hey, you know, um, just so you know, this land that I'm showing you, your descendants aren't going to really occupy it for until the fourth generation. And until that time, they're going to be taken into a land that is not there, but they're going to come out with great possessions. In verse 14, it says, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions possessions. The Egyptians give them silver and gold and clothing. Indeed, they came out of Egypt with great possessions. And we're going to see that uh, a little bit more clearly here in a moment. And this was the Lord's doing. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, we've come across Ramesses before 
in Genesis chapter 47, where Moses is speaking prophetically of what that land and that city will be called later on. In Genesis 47 verse 7, uh, 47 verse 11, it says this, Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, which later on we find out, and we've already gone over, is a land of Goshen, which they're in, as Pharaoh had commanded. And so Moses writes that this Ramesses here, he's not, he'll be a famous king. He's not even born for a few hundred years. And yet Moses, when he's writing this, is writing it for future generations to read, and they'll be more familiar with this land being called the land of Ramesses and the supply city being called um, uh, Ramesses. Uh, instead of Averis, as we've gone over in the past, okay? And so, again, Moses is speaking prophetically. He's speaking for those who are going to be reading this for his future audience, which would be us, that uh, when we see that, we know exactly what area he's talking about. We know exactly what city is being spoken of here. And so we went over that before. We we talked about the city of Averis that has been discovered under uh, the, the town of Ramesses there, uh, and uh, it's the archaeological dig called Tel Eldaba. And so we've gone over that. Now, Sukkoth, so they're going to be leaving from the land of Goshen where they are. They're going to go to Sukkoth. Well, Sukkoth is a Hebrew word, Sukkot, and it means booths or temporary dwellings. Now, the etymology of this word is sakak, and it means to block, to overshadow, to screen, to stop the approach. To shut off. We don't know where this place is. We don't know where their first stop was. But we do know this. It probably wasn't a town or a place where people normally stopped on their travels going someplace or another. We're seeing right here, how many people went? 600,000 men. Okay, how many women? I'd say 600,000. How many children? I don't know, 800,000. So we're talking over 2 million people. So how far can 2 million people go get in one day? Now, they leave in the middle of the night, as we see from, from the narrative here, okay? But how far can 2 million people, you know, get? I, I, I mean, along the way. Now, most scholars will tell you that when people traveled back in the day, you can go about 20 to 25 miles a day. Okay, on foot and, and all that kind of stuff with a, with a normal size family and all that kind of stuff. I would gather that with 2 million people, you're not, you're not getting 25 miles that day. Okay, so all we're told from this name is that when they got to wherever they stopped, it was a temporary dwelling. It was going to be, you're going to be in booths and, and just, you know, tents, uh, temporary structures and stuff like that until God tells you to move. Again, um, it's, it's explaining by the name itself means to stop, okay? And so wherever they stopped, it is to be known as it was only temporary as they continued on the way. Now, you could be saying, but Dave, that name sounds so familiar. Isn't there a town called Sukkot? Yes, there is, but that's in Israel. Later on, there will be a town called Sukkot or Sukkot here in Israel, but they're not in Israel at this point. They're just, this is their first stop, okay? This is their first stop. 
So again, 600,000 men and foot besides women and children, probably over 2 million people. Um, that's going to be very devastating to the economy of the Egyptians when they all leave. There goes their entire workforce. This also fulfills what Abraham was told in Genesis 12 too, I will make you a great nation. So you have 70 people or so that are arriving into Egypt, not including Joseph and his family, okay? And they grow to about 2 million people at this point. Thus fulfilling exactly what it says in Genesis 12 too, I will make you a great nation, God speaking, to Abraham. And so they are definitely now a great nation. And then I love this next verse. And a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds a great deal of livestock. This is absolutely fantastic. Um, in Genesis twelve three, God also told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you, Abraham. Coming from your descendancy is going to come someone that is going to bless all the families of the earth. And you see it right here as they come out as a, 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 a large nation of two million plus people. Who comes with them? A mixed multitude that are not Jews, that are not Israelites. And they're welcome to come so long as... What? They worship their God because they're going out to who? Serve Yahweh. And you have a mixed multitude that is coming as well. Well, who is this mixed multitude? I don't know. Maybe other slaves from foreign countries that were also there that came to believe in the living God as they saw one, you know, plague after another and saw all the things that were going on. Could possibly be, and I would submit that this is probably true as well, is that the Israelites were not the most faithful people during that time. When Moses first showed up, they weren't all excited. You have to prove yourself. And then after he does, they're excited. And then when, when uh, Pharaoh made it even harder for them, all of a sudden they're mad at him, you know, and, and doesn't really believe that God has called them and things like that. Very, very fickle. I would imagine that during that time that they were under bondage, that many of them maybe intermarried. Maybe some men married some of the women there. Maybe other foreign women that were also slaves or or possibly some women married some Egyptian men there, or some other foreigners that have come. It's a mixed multitude, and now they're coming in as well. And I love this because it gives a little glimpse of how it has always been this way. Anyone can come to know God. I want you to go over here to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, O foolish Galatians, this is Paul speaking to the Christian body there in Galatia. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed. Hey, the gospel was clearly given to you. You clearly received the gospel. You clearly understood that all the feasts and festivals and rituals of the law pointed to Jesus. And all that was completed in Jesus. And you don't need to go back to that. Okay? Foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you? 
He says this, that you should not obey the truth whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. He's paid the debt for everything. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith? When you received Jesus, is that how the Spirit came in? Did the Spirit ever come in by doing all the things that you were supposed to do? No. When did the Spirit come in? When I received that Jesus did everything for me on the cross. Once I believed that, that's when the Spirit came into me. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Oh, so the Spirit wasn't enough for you? Receiving Jesus, believing he has fulfilled everything that all the feasts and festivals and all the rituals and law pointed to, him completing it all, are you now going to go back to the law? Because the Spirit inside of you, which began this good work in you, can't complete that good work in you? Really? Now, this is something that is very, very important for all of us, and, and especially here, being the pastor here at Calvary Castle Rock. I've seen God open some amazing doors, the Spirit just leading and guiding. And sometimes what happens, you're so excited about that, you start doing what the Lord is telling you to do, and then you stop seeking Him of how to continue to do this, and the next thing you know, you're doing it in the flesh. We have a great big project that's going on with with the church build, that we have seen the Lord open the door. We have seen the Lord move in, in an amazing way. I am not about to step in there and try and finish that in the flesh. It's going to get done when God wants to get it done. And when I have people, Dave, why is it taking so long? I don't know. Ask God. That ain't my problem. That's a God thing. And it will get done when he wants to get it done. And we're looking, God, make a way. Show us how you're going to do this. Every delay is part of God's plan. Every delay is God perfecting his saints. That's the way it is. And we're going to watch God continue to do what he's going to do. Dave, when do you think we'll be up there? I don't know. I'm just hoping, you know, while I'm still alive. Uh, But it will be in God's timing. It won't be in my timing. It won't be in my timing. Because if it's in my timing, then we're trying to perfect it in the flesh. And I'm not about to do that. I'm not about to touch this. Uh, With a 10-foot pole, I touch it through the Spirit, and I just say, Lord, lead and guide. Do what you're going to do. And he's doing great things. If you go by it, you can see some walls going up. You can see all sorts of neat things that are happening. Um, But it's going to be in his timing. It's going to be in his timing. And so, again, I don't want to perfect anything in the flesh that God has started in the Spirit because I'm going to mess it up. And so he goes on and says, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just And then he makes a very important point here. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of of Abraham. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You know what this is telling me? I'm a son of Abraham. I'm a son of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Where? Where does it say that? Here we're being told the scriptures foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel to Abraham. When did God preach the gospel? To Abraham, the gospel is the good news 
of Jesus Christ. Gospel always means the good news of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Always. When did he preach Jesus to him? Very next line. He preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. God was telling Abraham that through your descendants, a descendant is going to come that is going to bless all the families of the earth. Who is it? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Comes through the line of Abraham who is going to bless all the families of the earth. It's always been part of God's plan that the Gentiles would be part of the kingdom of God. And just in case you don't know, a Gentile is is any ethnicity other than a Jew, okay? In God's economy, when you go through the Old Testament, there's only two groups of people. That's Jews and Gentiles, okay? And then, uh, again, as you continue to read here um, in Galatians as well as in Ephesians, God has uh, broken down the middle wall of separation, and through in the church, now there's only one, okay? There is no Jew or Gentile in the church. In the church, there's only one, And you are a child of God if you've received Jesus. And God's broken down that middle wall of separation. So now you're Christian, okay? There is no Jewish Christian, okay? And there is no Gentile Christian. It's just Christian, okay? The moment you put something before Christian, you're emphasizing that as opposed to being a Christian. There's no white Christian. There's no Asian Christian. There's no black Christian, We are one in Christ, is what the Bible says. You are Christian. And the moment you put something else in front of that, you're taking away what Christ actually did for you on the cross. And somehow you think your ethnicity is more important than being Christian. And it is not. And that is a slight on what God has done through his son, Jesus. I am Christian. That is who I am. And it's always been open to the, um, the Gentiles. And here we have some coming in at the very beginning as a nation, uh, as, as God is uh, forming the nation of Israel here. Verse 39, going back here to Exodus 12, verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt, could not wait, had to prepare provisions for them. No time to bake bread. Um, And so uh, here in the New King James, it says unleavened cakes of dough. In the NIV, it says loaves of unleavened bread, dough without yeast. In the New Living Translation, it says baked flat cakes from dough without yeast. In the Message Bible, it says hot pockets. So (laughs) you... Translations do matter, okay? If you don't, if you haven't been here very long, you might not know this, but uh, the Message Bible is a very, very horrible uh, translation. And, uh, and if you have one, it's not your fault. Someone gave it to you, you didn't know. Um, but if you have one here today and you want to trade that into me, I'll give you a brand new Bible in the back. They're a $70 Bible, okay? Um, that's how much I want to get that out of your hands. Because it's not a good translation. It's a New Age translation. And uh, it's not going to lead you closer to God. Um, it's going to give you a, a false understanding of God. Okay? Um, so, um, 
So anyway, but I'm, I'm, as a church, we're willing to just swap it out for you right now. You could choose any Bible that we have there in the uh, cafe, and, uh, uh, and, and we'll give that to you free of charge. Verse 40. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. We're going to talk a little bit more about the number of people coming out of Egypt, uh, as well as uh, how many years that they were actually under servitude there in Egypt, um, starting uh, the next time. Okay, so if you think I just kind of glossed over the number, I, I just kind of gave it to you of, of, of kind of what the traditional understanding of that is of, of people coming out of Israel. We're going to take a look at some other ways to uh, look at that as well. You can decide uh, yourself of, of, of what you think that is. I have my own understanding of it as well that I'll probably share a little bit with you. Um, but uh, we'll get into that uh, next time. That's how we're going to begin the, the next time getting together. Uh, verse 42 So um, it says, And it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. When it says no foreigner shall eat it, it's because that foreigner is choosing not to worship the God of Israel by getting circumcised so they can eat the Passover, showing they're of one mind and one accord in believing of the God of the Hebrews. And we'll see that here in a a second here as we continue to go through the other verses. Um, Passover has always been and is a type. It's a picture. It's an illustration. It is a pattern for salvation. And, and, and you can't circumvent that. You can't circumvent that. Um, the blood of the perfect lamb sacrifice serves as a substitute for our sins. Just as the Israelites were delivered from death by applying the blood in the doorway of their homes... We also are saved by applying the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, receiving the work that he did for us on the cross for the sin of mankind. Romans 3.23, all of sin fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Since we're all sinners, we deserve death. We deserve death. That's the penalty for being a sinner and committing sin. However, Jesus paid the price of death, that penalty for us, on the cross. As he became sin for us, he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. It was God's gift to us. But just like a sacrificed lamb was not enough, okay, for death to pass over, you had to take the blood, apply it on the home. So it is with Jesus' death does not benefit us until we apply the blood by receiving and admitting we are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus uh, dying on the cross for us is what paid the penalty for the sin. When you receive the work that Jesus did for us, we have now applied his blood. So when we die, death does not come and instead we have eternal life with him and death passes over us as well. And we go into everlasting life. In verse 44. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. A sojourner is a traveler. 
someone who's just passing through. And if they just seem to be passing through during the time of Passover, it's kind of like, no, you're not, you don't even understand what it means. Uh, you, you are not circumcised, thus believing in the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. And so, no, you cannot participate. The way that we know that you understand that God is Yahweh, the way that we know that you understand what he has called us to, that he's the one true God, is by being circumcised. It's an outward sign of an inward transformation and understanding of God. That's what circumcision is. And if they do not desire to worship the God of Israel through the covenant commitment of circumcision, then guess what? They can't participate in Passover. Seems to make sense. The hired man is also just somebody that's in town for however long and is just a hired servant for a temporary, for a time, working with you, among you, whatever, and he happens to be there during Passover, guess what? You don't get to eat the Passover meal. You don't get to celebrate it. You don't believe in the one true God. It's only until after you choose to do that and you show by way of circumcision, then you can, you can celebrate the Passover because it points to Christ. It points to Christ. In verse 46, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Um, and then verse 47, All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. The Passover feast, the Passover meal, was a communal meal. I want you to just zip over here to chapter uh, 12, verse 3. Just go over here real quick. As we start out this chapter a few weeks ago, Moses is told this by God in verse 3. It says, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, all the congregation. The word congregation means assembly, means community. Verse 6, the latter half of verse 6. Then the whole assembly of the congregation or community of Israel shall kill it at twilight. You're all to do this, the whole community. You're all to kill it at the same time, the lamb. And verse 7, and they, meaning the community, the congregation, shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses where they eat it. So everyone is to choose a lamb. Everyone is to kill it at twilight. Everyone is to apply the blood on their doorway. And then in verse 8, and then they, the congregation, the assembly, the community, shall eat the flesh on that night, roast in the fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, that they shall eat it. And then going down to verse 22, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin or the threshold, strike the lentil and two doorposts with the blood that is in the threshold, and none of you, meaning the community, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So this is a communal feast. It is the community of God that is to celebrate this. And so if you don't believe in God, then you are not to celebrate this with them. It is for the community of God. Verse 47 again, all the congregation or community of Israel shall keep it. Passover again was a meal to share with all of God's people. All of the Israelites need to celebrate the Passover. Since salvation was something that they shared, it was only right for them to join together for the feast that praised God for the grace that they had all received 
by a lamb that would, by its applied blood, would have death pass over them. This was the opportunity to pass along to future generations the meaning of Passover, God's deliverance and salvation to his people. As Christians, we also believe in the communion of the saints. Together, we also share every aspect of Christ's salvation in our lives. We were all sinners in need of a Savior. We were all included with Christ when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And one day, we will all together as a community be transformed into the glory of his image. And since God wants to gather people for his glory, corporate worship, like we do here on the weekend, is an essential part of the communion of the saints. We are called to have our own private time with God. We should have our own devotion time where we just get alone with the Lord and we pray and we read the word and we worship him. That is definitely true. However, we are not called to be Christians on our own. It is a very essence of our Christianity that we worship God together, praising him together, learning together, Hearing the preaching of the word together. Because we are called the body of Christ. We are called the bride of Christ. And a Christian who decides they don't need to get together with other believers for corporate worship, you're in spiritual danger. The Hebrew author said in Hebrews 10.25, Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. You show me someone who's having a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ, and I'll show you somebody who's planted in a fellowship somewhere. You show me somebody who's struggling in their faith, and I'll show you somebody who probably hasn't planted themselves in a fellowship with a community of God's saints. That's the way it works, because you exhort one another so much more as you see the day approaching. I said this last night. I'll say this again here this morning. I've never once, I don't believe I have, anyway. You'll have to go back and listen to the 12,000 messages I've already given, but I'm pretty sure I have never once said, man, I see the day approaching. I'm saying that now. I'm saying that now. I can see how society can go a little bit further down the road. I can see, but I can only see a little bit now. I can only see how they can go a little bit more. Because if they go a lot a bit more, I'm going, that's, that's getting really close to the tribulation itself. You know, you have all this AI that is being spoken of. When you read in the book of Revelation and how the beast speaks to the image, and all of a sudden the image comes alive, you know, this statue, this image, you're always looking at that before. Go, how is that going to be before? I don't know, you know. And, but now with AI, I totally understand what that means now. I totally understand what that means now. You know, there's just certain things that you just go, check, check, check. Well, I only have two more check marks now. You know, we're, we're getting real close here. I do see the day approaching. I'm not going to call it out. It'll be this time by next year or, you know, next Thursday or anything like that. I have no idea when the rapture is going to happen. But I know it could happen at any time. It always could have happened at any time. I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But I do see the day approaching when we have gotten to the place that we don't even know the difference between a man and a woman are you kidding me 
wow. And when you look at that uh, from a biblical point of view, what Satan has always tried to do is to mar the image of God. And because you're created in the image of God, what does he think he wants to do? He wants to confuse mankind so they don't see themselves in the image of God, that they see themselves in the image of anything they want to make themselves to be, which is a great offense to God himself who created us in his image. And you're just going, wow. And I got to tell you something. Ten years ago, I would never have thought that we'd be in the place where you cannot call a man a man, a woman a woman, that you now have to have all these different pronouns to where you're going, what? This is fantasy cuckoo land. And yet, I'm the bad person because I don't want to participate in your fantasy cuckoo land? Really? Wow. God. Maranatha, come quickly. This is crazy. It's, it's, it's crazy talk. You know, I'll love everyone, but I'm going to point him to Jesus. And I kind of get wrapped up in all this other peripheral stuff. Look, Jesus loves you. Just so you know, because I know I, this goes out there. If you're struggling about being a man, being a man, and if a woman being a woman, guess what? I just want to let you know, God created you for a purpose. He loves you. And whatever your biological sex is, he wants to bless you and use you as that person. And the only way you're going to know that is if you submit to him. And he loves you. And he has a plan for your life. And he can change you and rock your world if you'd let him. And we're here to let you know about that. But I do see the day approaching very, very quickly. Passover helps Unite God's people into one community. And so too does getting together for corporate worship unite the body of Christ. In verse 48 of chapter 12, it says, And when a stranger dwells with you, wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near, keep it, and he shall be as the native land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So again, a stranger, not an Israelite. But all of a sudden wants to dwell with you, sees the blessing that God is doing, wants to know, how can I worship this God? That I want to be like you. I, don't, I want to be in the same community of faith. Okay, let us explain to you who, who God is, the God of creation, and how he called our father Abraham, and this and that. And so we, need to, to, uh, so we need for you to be circumcised to be able to show that you really do believe. It's an outward sign for an inward transformation. Circumcision does not save you. But the applied blood does, which Passover is, showing that you believe that this is how God delivers his people, through the blood, through the blood. It's the same thing when it comes to the church. Same thing. Baptism does not save you, but it is an outward sign of an inward transformation that you are part of the community of God. You've heard me say it all the time. Look, uh, baptism's a lot like circumcision, and you're kind of going, actually, it's not. But <laughs> actually, it is, okay? And so in the way of what it symbolizes, okay? Because it is an outward, tra- outward sign of an inward transformation, to show that you belong to the body of Christ, which enables us to do what? Take communion together. 
the Bible makes it very clear that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, do not take communion because it will bring damnation to your own soul in the sense of (laughs) you think that you don't have to go through the same um, uh, pattern of salvation that everybody else goes through. No, you do. You first have to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You do. Okay, and if you've really done that, well, guess what? You can take communion. And if you've really done that and you really do believe that Jesus took your sin for you on the cross, that Jesus died for you, then you're going to really believe if Jesus died for me, I should then live for him. I should live for the one who died for me. And if you really believe that, well, what's keeping you from being baptized? And then when you're baptized, you've just made a profession of faith to everyone that you're part of the community of the body of Christ. And that's why communion speaks of that. It speaks of the fact that I believe in Jesus and that I am willing to be baptized in the community of Christ. And so that's what communion is all about. And we're about to take communion here in a moment. Now, Verse 49 says, One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Because the stranger who dwells among you is the one that is going to be circumcised because they want to be part of the community of faith. Okay? Um, And so there's not one law uh, for the Jews and one for the Gentile who dwells among you. It's kind of like, no, it's for everyone that has chosen to be part of the community of faith. Verse 50, Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on the very day, same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Now, it never ceases to amaze me that when secular scholars scoff at the biblical accounts of the Bible, that soon thereafter, God releases some sort of discovery. When it comes to the Exodus account, there are many archaeologists who still turn a blind eye to the exit account saying it's just a myth and there's no archaeological evidence even though we have plenty when you look for it in the middle kingdom period as the patterns of evidence has shown i I really encourage everybody to google patterns of uh patterns of evidence exodus story and uh to uh download the video get the book or whatever it's just amazing we've gone over some of their stuff as we've been going through the account we have seen that the city of Avaris has a huge Semitic population. We have seen the statue of Joseph. We've seen the 12 tombs for the 12 sons of Jacob there. We've seen the granaries that uh, Joseph did as well. And so there are a long list of discoveries that we've already discovered, but yet they still close their mind to the possibility that the exodus even occurred. And so they're always asking, the fact, well, what about the 10 plagues? Surely someone would have written about it. Well, someone did. His name is Yahweh through Moses, and it's the word of God. It's the word of God, and God does not lie. Also, Egypt has been known for not keeping uh, records that's going to show them in a poor light. Okay, so they they write all about, they have all in their uh, recordings and everything else, the records uh, of these great military conquests that they have done and great things that they have achieved. But you won't read anything of the military conquests that they didn't win or if they lost a war or if they lost this or some tragedy has happened to them. That's not written anywhere because they will only write about the good things. So the Ten Commandments you know, uh, I'm sorry, the 10 plagues that came down upon them, they're not going to be writing that in their history. It's just not going to happen. Or is it? It's interesting here that in the early 1800s, 
A papyrus manuscript was discovered in Egypt called the Admonitions of the Egyptian Sage or the Ipur Papyrus. It's in the Dutch Natural Museum. Here it is right here. Um, This is a manuscript that describes chaotic conditions in Egypt. At some time in the distant past, most say the Middle Kingdom period, which is when the Exodus occurred. I want to take a look at this manuscript that has just recently got, you know, translated um, within the last, you know, 50 years or so. And then it wasn't really known really until the last 20 years or so. And so it, it just hasn't been out there because the Egyptian archaeologists look at it, doesn't want to see it as being a possible exodus account. But when we look at what some of the things say, draw, draw your own conclusion. Remember, this will be from the point of view of the Egyptian. Not the point of view of God and his people, the point of view of an Egyptian. Now, the reason why, um, and this next uh, slide right here is going to tell us who this person is. It says, these are the words that Ipur answered the king. So, this manuscript is uh, attributed to Ipur. Ipur is some sort of scribe who can address the king. And he gives an Egyptian point of view of some sort of chaos that is happening in the land. Let's look at what the Bible says in Exodus 4.9. It says that you shall take water from the river and pour it out on dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Ipua writes, behold, Egypt is fallen to the pouring of water. And he, hmm, I wonder who that is, who poured water, poured the water on the ground, seizes the mighty in misery. Could that be Moses? He's the one that poured the water on the ground. He sees the mighty Pharaoh in misery through this. Okay, but that's not nearly enough. Let's go to the next one here. Exodus 7.20, And all the waters were in the rivers were turned to blood. The fish were in the river died. The rivers stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there's blood throughout all of Egypt. Ipua writes, The river is blood. If you drink of it, you lose your humanity and thirst for water. Interesting. Let's look at the next one. Exodus 9, 6. All the livestock of Egypt died, but one of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Exodus 9, 23. The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Exodus 9, 31. The flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in its bud. Ipua writes, Gone is the barley of abundance. Food supplies are running short. The nobles hunger and suffer. Those who had shelter are in the dark of the storm. Hmm, interesting. Let's look at the next one. (laughs) Exodus 10.7. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do not... Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Chapter 10, verse 15. For they, meaning the locusts, covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. They ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Ipua writes, what shall we do about it? A lot like, how long shall this man be a snare? What shall we do about it? All is ruined. Kind of like, all of Egypt is destroyed. Interesting. I wonder if there's more. (laughs) Next. 
Exodus 12, 29. Came to pass at midnight, the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. Ipua writes, behold, plague sweeps the land. Blood is everywhere with no shortage of the dead. He who buries his, what does that say there? Brother in the ground is everywhere. Woe is me for the grief of this time. Firstborn were what? Males. Interesting. He who buries his brother. Hmm. I wonder if there's more. Let's go. Exodus 12.30. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Ipua writes, wailing is throughout the land mingled with lamentations. Are you kidding me? But I guess this is all just a quinky dink. I'm sorry, but you would have to be a fool not to see the similarities of the ten plagues here with the account of Ipua. But there's something else. 1235. Here's where we talk about. And they asked from the Egyptian articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. Verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The people, Ipua writes, people are stripped of clothes. The slaves take what he finds. Behold, gold, lapis, lazuli, silver, tur- turquoise, car- uh, carnelian, Amethyst, emeralds, and all precious stones are strung on the necks of the female slaves. Wow. Wow. Can you remember this right here? Gold, silver, turquoise, carnelian, amethyst, emeralds, all precious stones as we read the next verse. When you get to Exodus 28, and it's talking about the uh, breastplate for the high priest and being made, this is what it says. And you shall put settings of stone in four rows of stones. The first row shall be sardis, carnelian, topaz, emerald. This shall be the first row. Second row, turquoise. That's one of the ones that he speaks is given, a sapphire, a diamond. And the third row, jacinth, agate, and amethyst. That was another one that was mentioned. And Exodus 28, in the fourth row, beryl, onyx, and jasper, they shall be in gold settings. Is it possible all these other stones that are mentioned is what he says are precious stones? That were also given to them. You read this and you just go, the evidence really is there. God does allow little things to, you know, come to the surface time and time again. We're going to talk a little bit as Israel uh, leaves Egypt that um, there are certain mines there in the Sinai and things like that that they might be going by. One is a copper mine, one is precious stones and gold and silver. Is it possible that as they left Egypt, they also went through these, went to these other areas, and all of a sudden they see two million or so people show up, and the Egyptians are there, and they're going, yeah, we need a little bit of uh, Sardis over here, we need a little Carnelian, we need a, a, you know, some of that. What are they going to do? Is it possible they went by way of the mines which they you know, uh, they're digging in to get more of these precious stones before they leave Egypt. It is a possibility. It is a possibility. 